Well, we are two weeks now back into our sermon series on the book of Isaiah. If you do not have your own Bible with you, we have one in our pews for you, uh, page 600, nice round number, page 600. We're looking at Isaiah uh, chapter 40, and we're looking at verse 12, verses 12 through 26. If you recall last week, I know it can be hard. I often have a hard time remembering what I preached on the week before. Uh, Last week, Isaiah showed us that though we are unreliable, God is reliable, and therefore he's worthy of our trust, and that God meets us in our failures and brings us under his shepherding care. And also, we aren't just recipients of this good news, but God calls us to be what? Remember? heralds of the good news. We're to go high on to the mountain, and we're to call others, behold your God. Now, when you hear your pastor say, okay, church, let's, let's herald the good news. Let's step up our evangelism efforts. All sorts of thoughts and emotions are triggered, aren't they? Perhaps a sense of guilt, or sense of inadequacy, or sense of indifference or sense of legalistic motivation. So what does Isaiah do? He lets God speak. And what does God say? God says, you humans have a tiny understanding of who I am. So let me show you my greatness and my glory through my own eyes. God's solution to our apathy and feelings of inadequacy is to let us see who he is. We need to behold just how glorious God is so that with delight we can call others to him. Our text again is Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, 
who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely as their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've given us this word. It is a bit of poetry. It um, contains thoughts that are perhaps ancient and maybe perhaps hard for us to wrap our heads around at first reading. But we know this is your word. We know it is for us today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate these texts for us. Help us to truly wrap, try to wrap our heads around the greatness and glory and the heaviness of you, Lord God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, we live in an amazing technological age. One proof is, is, is just how immersive we can get in other people's realities. For instance, take Formula One car racing. Today in the cockpits, there's cameras, and, and you can actually ride around in the car um, with the race car driver and get, get to experience things from his bone-jarring vantage point. Or consider the referee cam. When the referee wears a cam like a body cam on the field, you get to watch the football play unfold right before your eyes and perhaps even get knocked on your rear end by a darting running back. Or there's an immersive video that captivates me. I can't watch it enough. Perhaps you've seen it. It's on YouTube. It's that eagle flying high over the Alps. Somehow, some way, someone stuck a camera on the shoulder of an eagle and you get to soar high above and you get to dive down into the trees at lightning speed. So let me ask you, if you could strap a camera anywhere, upon what or who would you attach it? Today, Isaiah straps a camera as best he can upon God Almighty. God wants us to see things from his vantage point. And truthfully, when we think about it, we need to see things from God's vantage point. But the world we live in does not see things this way. Our society is increasingly influenced by secularism. So there is no God above. There is no creator who is to be forever blessed. At best, if God has any place at all in people's lives, it, he is on the fringes as an object of sentimental fancies. But also, sadly, the display of God's glory that is to come, it's going to be an adjustment for the church too, for you and for me. The Hebrew word for glory conveys weightiness. God is heavy, 
heavy, heavy. But sadly, the church as a whole tends not to live under the weightiness of God. David Wells, a thoughtful Christian scholar of our time, describes the church today as a place where God is weightless. Ray Roland Jr., who I'm indebted to, asks a great question for us today. Why does the glory of God sit lightly on believers today? We seem to have sunk to the level of quick-stop churches, where God is expected to lubricate the vehicle of American selfishness. Many churches have never known what it's like for God to come down and dwell among them in glory. For many, God is small, and therefore he's relegated to the margins of life. And so when Isaiah says what he said to us last week, to go high onto the mountains and shout out to the world, behold your God, the God that we tend to behold isn't all that much to behold for us and for others. And so Isaiah sticks a camera on God's shoulder so we would see for ourselves and be humbled. You know, the more we see the weightiness, the glory of God, the more in awe of him we become. And then the more we seek our happiness in our creator instead of in created things, and the more we tend to herald his glory to others. Um, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at it under five headings. Actually, here's a little passage outline for you. Uh, I'm stealing this from Ray Orland Jr., uh, and what we see here is this is a chiastic structure. Notice that God is the wise creator in green, and at the end, the very last thing we see is God is the watchful creator. And then in the red, we see God is immense Lord of the nations. That's our second point. And our fourth point is God is active. And right in the middle is this teaching in verses 18 through 20, where God alone is God. So those are our points this morning. We'll go through them quickly. First, God is the wise creator in verses 12 through 14. You know, one of my favorite baseball players growing up was Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench was the rookie of the year in his rookie year. He won 10 gold gloves. He was the MVP of the 1976 World Series. America was crazy over Johnny Bench. But the, one of the things that people went crazy over wasn't done on the field. See, amazingly, Johnny Bench can hold seven baseballs in one hand. Here's a picture of him. Look at that. Look how happy he looks. I've got a picture of my dog, Gus. looks just like that. So happy. Now, as amazing and marvelous and glorious as it is for Johnny Bench to hold seven baseballs in one hand, some of you are going to try this later, it is a trifle pittance compared to what God holds in his hand. The first thing Isaiah wants us to see about God is that he's got the whole world and the universe in his hands. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? The hollow of the hand is just where God has cupped his hand like you would maybe drink water. Accepting God's hand isn't a little sip. It's all the oceans, lakes, rivers, and streams, all in one little pool in his hand. And the heavens, the stars above, they can be marked off in the span of his hand between his thumb and his pinky. Isaiah helps us to take in 
all of creation and then ask, who else but God can weigh it, measure it, understand it with perfect precision and ease? God alone has the universe in his hand. And then in verses 13 and 14, Isaiah asks more questions meant to humble us under the glory of God. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? <laughs> or what man shows him his counsel? Hey, God, I got a great idea for you. Why don't we do this? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's rhetorical questions here, right? Meant to humble us. You and I had nothing to do with it. We're created beings. We're part of the creation. We're not the creator. God alone created everything, every fish in the sea, from the weird-looking ones, the robin fishes, to, you know, the cute little cuddly goldfish, every creature on earth. And he alone established and shaped all the galaxies. He came up with the formula for gravity. God needs no advisor, no one. So God is the wise creator. Next, Isaiah turns to show us that God is the immense Lord over all the nations. The big idea here is this. When we come to see the weightiness of God over all the scary nations on the earth, we come to deeply believe that God is going to fulfill his promises. First, we see that God governs this world effortlessly. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Have you ever taken part in one of those uh, relay games? Usually little kids do it where you, you start on your team and you've got this big bucket of water and you've got to run with a cup to the end and you've got to pour it in and try the first team to fill up the, the other bucket wins, right? Have you ever done that? As you're scurrying across, your team's yelling at you to, to succeed, right? Do you worry if a drop or two falls out? No, you just keep going and you pour it in as fast as you can and you run back. Isaiah is helping us to see from God's vantage point, every nation, past, present, and future, including the United States, is a drop in the bucket, sloshing around. The image is that God governs the world effortlessly. Isaiah moves from nations in general to one nation in particular, and the nation is Lebanon. And what he shows us here is that we can never worship God as he deserves. Lebanon is known for its vast cedar forests. Here's a picture of me from last year when I was in Lebanon, in those very same forests. Those are little kids from a, a Lebanese Christian uh, church that I was hanging out with in the forest. Big, beautiful trees. Those trees of Lebanon were used to make the temple uh, in Jerusalem. In verse 16, the cedar forests of Lebanon help us to understand the worship that God is worthy of. Look what it says. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Isaiah wants us to imagine in our heads all the trees of Lebanon laid in a giant pile like, like Burning Man, I guess, or something. Oh, it got rained out this year, right? 
And, and all of the animals of the land are laid on top as a sacrifice, and they're lit on fire. Would it be enough? Would it be enough to ascribe to God all of the glory that he is worthy of? Would it be? And the answer is no, not even close. Think about that. And so from our perspective today, we should be asking ourselves, then how small and inadequate must our worship be? Is it not true we can gather for worship and we can be more concerned with by how great we think our worship of God is? Wow, our music was great. Well, it maybe wasn't that great. Wow. Rather than how great is our God that we worship. Listen, even the best, absolute best handle Messiah performance on earth is not sufficient worship because of who God is. From God's perspective, Handel's Messiah is like a five-year-old on the piano playing chopsticks. Now, perhaps you're feeling the weight of this truth. Isaiah wants us to feel the weight. Perhaps you're wondering, well, is there any worship on earth that has ever been done that is, glorifies God? Well, there is. There's one sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago on a cross when the Son of God offered up himself in our place. Compared to that, everything else is chopsticks. Now, this same cross that brings glory to God is also the same cross that makes our worship today here on earth glorious to God. If you are a Christian here, your life is hidden in Christ. All of who you are are bound up in this glorious cross. And his sacrifice of glory is now your sacrifice of glory. And so our worship can and does please God when we worship in spirit and in truth in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm not going to go on. Or you could pay me to go on. Is anybody, who can be 10 bucks? All right, nobody. Gosh. Anyway, Isaiah moves back to point us to all the nations. And what he says here in verse 17 is God has no difficulties with any human opposition. 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Scratch your heads. What is less than nothing? <laughs> what does it mean to be less than empty? Here Isaiah wants us to see that even though all the nations rage against God and humanity everywhere is in opposition to God, this isn't a difficulty for him. Isaiah is saying that God is not troubled by how most of the world finds fault with him. And yet, as Christians, we can get all worked up by how entire nations are opposed to Christ. At Grace Church, we, we support numerous missionaries in China, and we know China is opposed to Christianity. It's outlawed. Pastors are imprisoned for heralding the good news. Church buildings are taken away by the state. Listen, think this through. China is less than nothing 
from God's perspective. It is nothing and empty. Empty is what? The opposite of heavy. All the nations are weightless compared to God. And so remember the context, right? The people of God are now in exile in Babylon. God has promised to care for his people and bring them out of exile in 70 years. But the question is, can we believe him? Will he really do it? Does he have the power? Yes. The nation of Babylon is weightless. Christian, we need to see this more and more. Why? Because the more weighty God becomes to us, the more thrilling our lives become. And the more we come to love and herald this good news. Behold your God. The next point is the center point of the argument, verses 18 through 20. God alone is God. The big idea here is this. Listen, the human heart, does it not, wants to reduce God to something that we can control, but God is categorically other. First, God is uniquely incomparable. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Isaiah asks us to look around and find something in creation that you can point to and say, see, over there, that's God. Notice I'm not pointing to Grayson in his general direction, though. There is nothing in creation that you can point to and say, there is the creator. We now can see him. Isaiah wants us to understand that God cannot fit in a box of any size. He alone is God. And guess what? We are not. But herein lies our problem. We want to play God. We want to control life's events. We want to decide what life is all about. That is why Isaiah now points to our idol-making tendencies. We see that we're foolish to worship God-like substitutes. You know, in the ancient world, people manufactured little idols of wood or clay or bronze or perhaps even gold. Say you wish to have children, a large family, then you would pay to have someone make an idol in the image of Aphrodite or, or Isis, and you would hold that God in your hand and manipulate it. You would try your best to praise it and care for it, focus upon it, so that what? So that it would owe you. So that you could control the deity and have many strong, beautiful kids. So your life's dreams would be realized. Isaiah helps us to see how stupid it is to do this. Verse 19, an idol? Like, an idol? Really? Like, we're going there? A craftsman casts it, like a person makes it. It's overlaid with gold. Yeah, that's great, but it's, it's just wood. Even if you get wood that will not rot, it's a craftsman, craftsman who sets up the idol that will not move. Now, people in our modern era, we don't pay for idols and put them on our shelves, try to manipulate them, but we do bow to idols all the same. See, you will either worship the one true God and entrust your life to him, or you will bow down to the idol of family or career or security or wealth or you name it. One of the problems with idols is that we think that they work for us, but really idols own us. 
And in the end, we actually become what we worship. For instance, if you worship at the altar of financial, financial security, your life will become like that stock chart that you worship. Your happiness will rise and fall with the market. And the longer you bow to the God of financial security, oddly enough, the more insecure you will be with your finances. I got an amen there. I heard that. And so, listen, you will either live holy for God and his glory, or there's an idol in you. It's as simple as that. As Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And yet we try. I'm going to be the first human being that succeeds. Just watch me. <clears throat> That's why instead of idols that we hold in our hands, God speaks to his people and says, behold your God who holds you in his hands. Idols cannot move, but God can, and he does. God alone is God. There is no other. So let us bow before him and find our happiness in him alone. And God is on the move. That is Isaiah's next point. God is the active Lord over world leaders. Here Isaiah argues with us because he knows human nature. He, he shows us how, you guys know this happens, right? We can know the truth, but fail to let it impact our lives. Like, like cigarettes, like people who smoke, right? Like they know cigarettes kill, but they go on smoking anyway, right? We tend to do this in our lives. Isaiah knows we can live this way, so he challenges us to what? To remember to remember. <laughs> we need to remember to remember. Do you not know, verse 21, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Let Isaiah's words arrest you right now. Here Isaiah is saying, don't just put God on a shelf. Don't relegate your love and devotion to him to one hour a day on a Sunday or whenever times get tough or rough. Isaiah argues with us so that we stop seeing God through our own eyes and start seeing God through God's eyes. And what does Isaiah show us? That the scary world isn't so scary. All these world leaders who are in such a rage around the world, the, the Putins and the Xi Jinpings, they're, they're not so scary because God sees them rightly. Verse 22 to 24. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's us, okay. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads uh, them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. There it is again. There's no weight. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Listen, there's a certain awe that comes upon you when you consider how we humans are like bugs, grasshoppers, scurrying around the earth. The Bible calls this the fear of the Lord. 
when you and I rightly see ourselves for who we really are, like tiny little bugs in God's giant universe, it humbles us, or at least it should, and it produces in us a healthy sense of fear or awe, which is why the Bible says what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without a healthy fear of God and a sense of his greatness and majesty and weightiness, you cannot begin to know God. Lastly, we see that God is the watchful creator, verses 25 and 26. You know, a number of our founding fathers weren't Christians, they were deists. Deists believe in God, but they insist that God is no longer engaged in the world that he created. They liken him to a great watchmaker up in the sky who made the watch, the universe, and wound it up, but now he just lets it run without any input from him. And so deists believe, they believe in God, but they also believe that the fate of mankind is now in the hands of mankind. It's up to us. But is this true? Isaiah says no, thankfully. The big idea is this, that God is attuned to all that is in creation, including you and me. What Isaiah wants us to see is that God manages the universe down to its faintest of star that you can barely see. He knows it by name. And so he will never lose track of that star, nor will he ever lose track of you. And so we must have confidence because God is watching over everything. Verse 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? LeBron James? No, he's good. Lift up your eyes on high and see the stars. That's what he's talking about. Who created these? Right? Who created the stars? He who brings out their host, the stars, by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power. Listen, not one is missing. Imagine if you can look up at the stars at night and go, oh, gosh, the North Star's gone. <laughs> How did that happen? It's not going to happen. You know, one of the nice things about living out here on the East End is that you can actually see the stars at night. How many of you have friends come out from the city and they go, oh, my gosh, you can see the stars out here? And you're like, welcome to the East End. You know, I think all of us would benefit from some regular stargazing. Behold the grandeur of this universe and to realize that it's, it's all in God's control. Every star has a name. As many of you know, our church is now part of the Kurdistan Partnership. We're one of the founding churches of this. And over the next 20 years, we will be planting numerous churches in the Kurdistan region, which is northern Iraq. And this work has already begun. We are recruiting missionaries, individuals and couples to go into Iraq with this message and to recruit and train up church leaders. To, tomorrow we have a, a, a seasoned uh, couple, which means they're older. Uh, they've done ministry in the Middle East and they're going for a week-long vision trip uh, to see if the Lord would call them to Kurdistan as part of our partnership. Last week, we had our monthly steering committee 
meeting and I was asked to open in prayer and I prayed something like this. Father Almighty, we delight that you're enthroned in the heavens above and that the very stars that we see at night proclaim your goodness and your glory. And we praise you for how these Kurdish people on the other side of the globe look out at night and see these very same stars. And so, Father, hear our prayers for northern Iraq. May they come to know the one who brings out the stars at night and knows each one by name. Now for a little ancient geography fact. Long before the Kurds came to live in northern Iraq, the Babylonians occupied the land. And the Babylonians were astrologers. They looked at the constellations in the sky, believing that the constellations controlled the destinies of man on earth. God wants the Babylonians and the Kurds and us in America to see something, to know something. And what is it? God is the watchful creator who, by the power of his will, holds all things in the universe in their proper place. Think on this. Our sun, it's a pretty nice sun. It's the best one, you know, nearby, you know. But it's just an average-sized sun. But even this average-sized sun can hold one million Earths inside of it. And our average-sized sun is but one of 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And according to the latest probings of the Hubble Space Telescope, listen, they are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. Humbling, isn't it? Now, if we see things the way God sees things, we are just the tiniest of tiniest of tiniest inhabitants in his great and glorious universe. But also, amazingly, God knows us. Just as I say, Isaiah ends by saying, not one is missing, so too God knows us all by name. Listen, the same God who created all things holds all things under his control. This same God made mankind in God's image to reflect his glory on earth as we live on earth to serve God. God is our watchful creator who wants us to see things the way he sees things. And when God sees things the way, when we see things the way God sees things, guess what? Our lives come alive. We no longer just go through the religious motions as, as if we believe we don't try to keep God happy enough with us so that we can be left to ourselves. If you're here today and you have a hard time believing in God, is it because you expect God to be someone you can wrap your head around? But what if God is someone you can't size up? You can't wrap your head around, make easy sense of. Hold steady under a magnifying glass. Because you can't. 
What if you came to realize that as smart as you think you are, you only have a pea-sized brain (laughs) compared to the glory and complexity of God? And what if you came to realize that the reason you don't believe in the Christian God isn't a brain problem, but a heart problem? See, I used to believe, before I became a Christian at age 29, I used to believe that Christians were just like dumb, like they were low on the IQ scale. You know, low IQ, people will believe that stuff. Smart people never believe such things. But then I was kind of challenged by the gospel and, of course, challenged by the facts. Some of the biggest, brightest brains and minds in all of human history were believers. And so then why is it that some super smart people believe while others don't? Because unbelief isn't a head problem It's a heart problem. People don't want to believe. Their hearts are happy to live without God. They're afraid that to give oneself to God means that they must lose themselves. Ultimately, to truly believe in God means you must step down from the throne of your own life and allow God to be on the throne over your life. But the human heart It fights this. Is that you? Now, if you are a believer here today, how do these words of Isaiah challenge you? Is your life of worship heavy? Is there a weightiness to it because the weight of God's glory rests upon you? If the heavy glory is creator of all things, also manages this universe down to the faintest of stars. Will he ever lose track of you? No. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We think we lose our life when we come to Christ, but actually we get life from heaven, from God, from Christ. Christian, God wants us to see that God is attuned to you and to me. Your hairs are numbered. No sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's watchfulness. Though you fail daily to keep God fully in your sights, he is always watching over you so we've come to see this morning that God is not just heavy and that he alone is God of all things, but he's also close to us in Christ. This morning, Isaiah stuck a camera, so to speak, on the shoulders of God so that we can see God through God's eyes. The last image for us to see before responding with our hymn of response, your great name we praise, is this table. God wants our worship to be heavy. For it is the heavy things in life that move us, that have weight. And the Lord's Supper, it's heavy. It moves us. Will you let it be heavy this morning? At this table, we see the God of all glory who holds this immense universe in the palm of his hands. He comes near to us in mercy and in grace because he cares for you. 
and he pardons you, and he adopts you as his very own. Talk about heavy. <laughs> Doesn't get any heavier than this. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often trivialize you. We confess that our lives, our worship, often is weightless. But we now see that you are glorious and good. You are the heavy one. You're the one who moves mountains. You're the one who controls all things. In the palm of his hand, you have this universe. And you have us. This gives us comfort and joy and delight. It rebukes us, but it lifts us as well. Help us to live in light of this truth today, we pray. Amen.